Part three of Chapter One of the Exploits of Brigadier Gerard by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. For a moment we could not realize it. Such indescribable baseness was outside all our experiences. Then, as we understood how foolish we had been to trust for an instant a man with such a history, a flush of rage came over us, rage against his villainy and against our own stupidity. We rushed at the door together, beating it with our fists and kicking with our heavy boots. The sound of our blows and of our execrations must have resounded through the castle. We called to this villain, hurling at him every name which might pierce even into his hardened soul. But the door was enormous, such a door as one finds in medieval castles, made of huge beams clamped together with iron. It was as easy to break as a square of the old guard and our cries appeared to be of as little avail as our blows, for they only brought for answer the clattering echoes from the high roof above us. When you have done some soldiering, you soon learn to put up with what cannot be altered. It was I, then, who first recovered my calmness, and prevailed upon Duroc to join with me in examining the apartment which had become our dungeon. There was only one window which had no glass in it, and was so narrow that one could not so much as get one's head through. It was high up, and Duroc had to stand upon a barrel in order to see from it. "'What can you see?' I asked. "'Firwoods, and an avenue of snow between them,' said he. "'Ah!' he gave a cry of surprise. I sprang upon the barrel beside him. There was, as he said, a long, clear strip of snow in front. A man was riding down it, flogging his horse, and galloping like a madman. As we watched, he grew smaller and smaller, until he was swallowed up, by the black shadows of the forest. "'What does that mean?' asked Duroc. "'No good for us,' said I. "'He may have gone for some brigands to cut our throats. "'Let us see if we cannot find a way out of this mouse-trap "'before the cat can arrive.' "'The one piece of good fortune in our favour "'was that beautiful lamp. "'It was nearly full of oil and would last us until morning. "'In the dark our situation would have been far more difficult.' By its light we proceeded to examine the packages and cases which lined the walls. In some places there was only a single line of them, while in one corner they were piled nearly to the ceiling. It seemed that we were in the storehouse of the castle, for there were a great number of cheeses, vegetables of various kinds, bins full of dried fruits, and a line of wine barrels. One of these had a spigot in it, and as I had eaten little during the day, I was glad of a cup of claret and some food. As to Duroc, he would take nothing but paced up and down the room in a fever of anger and impatience. I'll have him yet, he cried every now and again. The rascal shall not escape me. This was all very well, but it seemed to me, as I sat on a great round cheese eating my supper, that this youngster was thinking rather too much of his own family affairs and too little of the fine scrape into which he had got me. After all, his father had been dead fourteen years and nothing could set that right, but here was Etienne Gerard, the most dashing lieutenant in the whole Grand Army, in imminent danger of being cut off at the very outset of his brilliant career. Who was ever to know the heights to which I might have risen if I were knocked on the head in this hole-and-corner business, which had nothing whatever to do with France or the Emperor? I could not help thinking what a fool I had been, when I had a fine war before me, and everything which a man could desire, to go off on a hare-brained expedition of this sort, as if it were not enough to have a quarter of a million Russians to fight against, 
without plunging into all sorts of private quarrels as well. "'That is all very well,' I said at last, as I heard Duroc muttering his threats. "'You may do what you like to him when you get the upper hand. At present the question rather is, what is he going to do to us?' "'Let him do his worst,' cried the boy. "'I owe a duty to my father.' "'That is mere foolishness,' said I. "'If you owe a duty to your father, I owe one to my mother, "'which is to get out of this business safe and sound.' "'My remark brought him to his senses. "'I have thought too much of myself,' he cried. "'Forgive me, Monsieur Gerard. "'Give me your advice as to what I should do.' "'Well,' said I, "'it is not for our health that they have shut us up here among the cheeses. "'They mean to make an end of us if they can, that is certain.' They hope that no one knows that we have come here, and that none will trace us if we remain. Do your hussars know where you have gone to? I said nothing. Hmm. It is clear that we cannot be starved here. They must come to us if they are to kill us. Behind a barricade of barrels we could hold our own against the five rascals whom we have seen. That is probably why they have sent that messenger for assistance. We must get out before he returns. "'Precisely, if we are to get out at all.' "'Could we not burn down this door?' he cried. "'Nothing could be easier,' said I. "'There are several casks of oil in the corner. "'My only objection is that we should ourselves be nicely toasted, "'like two little oyster pâtés.' "'Can you not suggest something?' he cried in despair. "'Ah, what is that?' "'There had been a low sound at our little window, "'and a shadow came between the stars and ourselves.' A small white hand was stretched into the lamplight. Something glittered between the fingers. "'Quick, quick!' cried a woman's voice. We were on the barrel in an instant. "'They have sent for the Cossacks. Your lives are at stake. Ah, oh, I am lost! I am lost!' There was the sound of rushing steps, a hoarse oath, a blow, and the stars were once more twinkling through the window. We stood helpless upon the barrel, with our blood cold with horror. Half a minute afterwards we heard a smothered scream ending in a choke. A great door slammed somewhere in the silent night. "'Those ruffians have seized her! They will kill her!' I cried. Duroc sprang down with the inarticulate shouts of one whose reason has left him. He struck the door so frantically with his naked hands that he left a blotch of blood with every blow. "'Here's the key!' I shouted, picking one from the floor. She must have thrown it in at the instant that she was torn away. My companion snatched it from me with a shriek of joy. A moment later he dashed it down upon the boards. It was so small that it was lost in the enormous lock. Duroc sank upon one of the boxes with his head between his hands. He sobbed in his despair. I could have sobbed too when I thought of the woman and how helpless we were to save her. But I am not easily baffled. After all, this key must have been sent to us for a purpose. The lady could not bring us that of the door, because this murderous stepfather of hers would most certainly have it in his pocket. Yet this other must have a meaning, or why should she risk her life to place it in our hands? It would say little for our wits if we could not find out what that meaning might be. I set to work moving all the cases out from the wall, and Duroc, gaining new hope from my courage, helped me with all his strength. It was no light task, for many of them were large and heavy. On we went, working like maniacs, slinging barrels, cheeses, and boxes pell-mell into the middle of the room. 
At last there only remained one huge barrel of vodka, which stood in the corner. With our united strength we rolled it out, and there was a little low wooden door in the wainscot behind it. The key fitted, and with a cry of delight we saw it swing open before us. With the lamp in my hand I squeezed my way in, followed by my companion. We were in the powder magazine of the castle, a rough walled cellar with barrels all round it, and one with the top staved in in the centre. The powder from it lay in a black heap upon the floor. Beyond there was another door, but it was locked. "'We are no better off than before,' cried Duroc. "'We have no key.' "'We have a dozen,' I cried. "'Where?' I pointed to the line of powder barrels. "'You would blow this door open?' "'Precisely.' "'But you would explode the magazine.' "'It was true, but I was not at the end of my resources.' "'We will blow open the storeroom door,' I cried. "'I ran back and seized a tin box which had been filled with candles. "'It was about the size of my busby, "'large enough to hold several pounds of powder. "'Duroc filled it while I cut off the end of a candle. "'When we had finished it would have puzzled a colonel of engineers "'to make a better petard. "'I put three cheeses on the top of each other "'and placed it above them so as to lean against the lock. "'Then we lit our candle-end and ran for shelter, shutting the door of the magazine behind us. It is no joke, my friends, to be among all those tons of powder, with the knowledge that if the flame of the explosion should penetrate through one thin door, our blackened limbs would be shot higher than the castle keep. Who could have believed that a half-inch of candle could take so long to burn? My ears were straining all the time for the thudding of the hooves of the Cossacks who were coming to destroy us. I had almost made up my mind that the candle must have gone out, when there was a smack like a bursting bomb, our door flew to bits, and pieces of cheese with a shower of turnips, apples, and splinters of cases were shot in among us. As we rushed out we had to stagger through an impenetrable smoke with all sorts of debris beneath our feet, but there was a glimmering square where the dark door had been. The petard had done its work. In fact, it had done more for us than we had even ventured to hope. It had shattered jailers as well as jail. The first thing that I saw as I came out into the hall was a man with a butcher's axe in his hand, lying flat upon his back with a gaping wound across his forehead. The second was a huge dog with two of its legs broken, twisting in agony upon the floor. As it raised itself up I saw the two broken ends flapping like flails. At the same instant I heard a cry, and there was Duroc thrown against the wall with the other hound's teeth in his throat. He pushed it off with his left hand while again and again he passed his sabre through its body, but it was not until I blew out its brains with my pistol that the iron jaws relaxed and the fierce bloodshot eyes were glazed in death. There was no time for us to pause. A woman's scream from in front, a scream of mortal terror, told us that even now we might be too late. There were two other men in the hall, but they cowered away from our drawn swords and furious faces. The blood was streaming from Duroc's neck and dyeing the grey fur of his pelisse. Such was the lad's fire, however, that he shot in front of me, and it was only over his shoulder that I caught a glimpse of the scene as we rushed into the chamber in which we had first seen the master of the Castle of Gloom. The Baron was standing in the middle of the room, his tangled mane bristling like an angry lion. He was, as I have said, a huge man with enormous shoulders, 
and as he stood there with his face flushed with rage and his sword advanced, I could not but think that in spite of all his villainies he had a proper figure for a grenadier. The lady lay cowering in a chair behind him. A wheel across one of her white arms and a dog-whip upon the floor were enough to show that our escape had hardly been in time to save her from his brutality. He gave a howl like a wolf as we broke in, and was upon us in an instant, hacking and driving with a curse at every blow. I have already said that the room gave no space for swordsmanship. My young companion was in front of me, in the narrow passage between the table and the wall, so that I could only look on without being able to aid him. The lad knew something of his weapon, and was as fierce and active as a wildcat, but in so narrow a space the weight and strength of the giant gave him the advantage. Besides, he was an admirable swordsman. His parade and riposte was quick as lightning. Twice he touched Duroc upon the shoulder, and then, as the lad slipped on a lunge, he whirled up his sword to finish him before he could recover his feet. I was quicker than he, however, and took the cut upon the pommel of my sabre. "'Excuse me,' said I, "'but you have still to deal with Etienne Gerard.' He drew back and leaned against the tapestry-covered wall, breathing in little hoarse gasps, for his foul living was against him. "'Take your breath,' said I. "'I will await your convenience.' "'You have no cause of quarrel against me,' he panted. "'I owe you some little attention,' said I, "'for having shut me up in your storeroom. "'Besides, if all other were wanting, "'I see cause enough upon that lady's arm.' "'Have your way, then,' he snarled, "'and leapt at me like a madman. "'For a minute I saw only the blazing blue eyes "'and the red glazed point which stabbed and stabbed, "'rasping off to right or to left, "'and yet ever back at my throat and my breast. "'I had never thought that such good sword-play "'was to be found at Paris in the days of the Revolution. "'I do not suppose that in all my little affairs "'I have met six men who had a better knowledge of their weapon.' but he knew that I was his master. He read death in my eyes, and I could see that he read it. The flush died from his face, his breath came in shorter and in thicker gasps, yet he fought on, even after the final thrust had come, and died still hacking and cursing, with foul cries upon his lips, and his blood clotting upon his orange beard. I who speak to you have seen so many battles that my old memory can scarce contain their names, and yet of all the terrible sights which these eyes have rested upon, there is none which I care to think of less than of that orange beard with the crimson stain in the centre from which I had drawn my sword-point. It was only afterwards that I had time to think of all this. His monstrous body had hardly crashed down upon the floor before the woman in the corner sprang to her feet clapping her hands together and screaming out in her delight. For my part, I was disgusted to see a woman take such delight in a deed of blood, and I gave no thought as to the terrible wrongs which must have befallen her before she could so far forget the gentleness of her sex. It was on my tongue to tell her sharply to be silent, when a strange, choking smell took the breath from my nostrils, and a sudden yellow glare brought out the figures upon the faded hangings. Duroc, Duroc, I shouted, tugging at his shoulder. The castle is on fire. The boy lay senseless upon the ground, exhausted by his wounds. I rushed out into the hall to see whence the danger came. It was our explosion which had set a light to the dry framework of the door. 
Inside the storeroom, some of the boxes were already blazing. I glanced in, and as I did so, my blood was turned to water by the sight of the powder barrels beyond, and of the loose heap upon the floor. It might be seconds, it could not be more than minutes, before the flames would be at the edge of it. These eyes will be closed in death, my friends, before they cease to see those crawling lines of fire and the black heap beyond. How little I can remember what followed. Vaguely I can recall how I rushed into the chamber of death, how I seized Yurok by one limp hand and dragged him down the hall, the woman keeping pace with me and pulling at the other arm. Out of the gateway we rushed, and on down the snow-covered path, until we were on the fringe of the fir forest. It was at that moment that I heard a crash behind me, and glancing round, saw a great spout of fire shoot up into the wintry sky. An instant later there seemed to come a second crash, far louder than the first. I saw the fir trees and the stars whirling round me, and I fell unconscious across the body of my comrade. It was some weeks before I came to myself in the post-house of Arensdorf, and longer still before I could be told all that had befallen me. It was Duroc, already able to go soldiering, who came to my bedside and gave me an account of it. He it was who told me how a piece of timber had struck me on the head and laid me almost dead upon the ground. From him, too, I learned how the Polish girl had run to Arensdorf, how she had roused our hussars, and how she had only just brought them back in time to save us from the spears of the Cossacks, who had been summoned from their bivouac by that same black-bearded secretary, whom we had seen galloping so swiftly over the snow. As to the brave lady who had twice saved our lives, I could not learn very much about her at that moment from Duroc, but when I chanced to meet him in Paris two years later, after the campaign of Wagram, I was not very much surprised to find that I needed no introduction to his bride, and that, by the queer turns of fortune, he had himself, had he chosen to use it, that very name and title of the Baron Straubenthal, which showed him to be the owner of the blackened ruins of the Castle of Gloom. End of chapter 1